join us as we take a look behind the scenes with the independent musicians of Louisiana. Learn about upcoming projects before they drop. Experience the rich heritage of iconic venues and get first-hand accounts of exclusive events. Musicians are remarkable people. Get to know them, their struggles, and the inspiration for their art. NewOrleansMusicians.com is dedicated to uplifting the artists and providing them with the tools necessary to elevate their craft. We shine a spotlight on them, as well as highlight the music scene and educate everyone with our interviews, album reviews, and music scene news. This is NewOrleansMusicians.com. I'm attempting to give musicians uh, and the, the music scene a humanizing factor um, to show what's behind it, and that way they can come to understand not only who you are, but why you play the music you play and your chosen genre, and get to know you, you know? Sure. I like to see people take a personal vested interest in the players that are in the field instead of just getting drunk while you're playing in the background or something, you know? Yeah. So, um, all right, that's it. So we'll just start with you saying your name and where you were born, and uh, we'll just take it from there. Okay. Well, my name is Taylor Nada. I was born right here in Baton Rouge at Women's Hospital, like everybody else. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, I've lived all over the place, but I was born right here. Yeah. In Baton Rouge, 1988. 88. And um, do you have siblings, uh, brothers, sisters? I do. I got two sisters. Yeah. And a Older? little brother. I got an adopted brother and two biological sisters. Okay. Now they're younger than me. I'm I'm the oldest by far. I'm I'm 35. I got a sister who's 28, and then I got another sister who just turned 17 this week. Yeah. That's a big span. Huh? Right. Yeah, it is. Um, I've frequently found that uh, musicians that had older siblings were exposed to a wider range of music because they got to experience the, maybe their older brother's rock and roll collection or something like that, you know, so it it kind of threw a curve in there because there is a, a span or a generational gap sometimes between the child and the parents and maybe their music doesn't quite appeal to them, you know? Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Well, for me, I, had, I think I have a pretty eclectic background and, and set of influences. Um, you know, I'm a country singer primarily, like country Americana, but mm -hmm. neither one of my parents are big country fans, neither one of them. Uh, my dad was big into Southern rock. He really liked Credence Clearwater and the Allman Brothers and the Marshall Tucker Band and Leonard Skinner. And, you know, as far as country went, he'd get down with like Alabama yeah. or the Charlie Daniels Band because sure. they're a little more like Southern rock than what we'd call country, you know. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't really a diehard country fan. And my mom, she didn't listen to country at all. She made fun of country music and didn't, didn't like it too much. She really liked R&B and pop, old pop, you know, like Madonna. Really? Uh, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. And, and she would, she liked, uh, you know, she liked stuff like Peebo Bryson and mm. uh, uh, like Luther Vandross and mm. things like that. So, you know, I kind of grew up with, you know, that that country meets R&B, or sorry, Southern Rock meets R&B uh, kind of atmosphere in, at the home. And my dad was really a workaholic. He wasn't around a whole lot when I was a kid. And my mom didn't have good health, so my grandpa used to really step in and spend an awful lot of time with me. Oh, okay. Uh, a ton of time with me. And he was a diehard, serious, hardcore country fan. Sure. So, and he played guitar, and he taught me how to play guitar. Gotcha. So I learned how to play guitar from him. He was showing me how to do all this old, like, Merle Travis and Chet Atkins <laughs> stuff that he liked. 
and uh, he had a record collection. He had a room in his house that was like a music room. He had a bunch of guitars in there and uh, an old vinyl player, a good one. An old, I think it was a Sony, if I remember right, but it had real heavy like metal knobs and it had these, he had these tall speakers, you know, about this high, all solid wood and I didn't realize then how good that that equipment was. I love those things. Yeah, me too, man. But looking back, like I used to sit by, I used to just pull out vinyls and I didn't know who none of these people were. I just would spend a lot of time in that music room of his and I'd pull out a vinyl, oh, Merle Haggard, well, let's pull this out and see what his sounds like. Close the lid, put the, you know, put the needle on there and fire it up and the sounds, like, oh, this is a cool record. And those guitar parts, I used to sit and try to work them out and then I'd pull, what's this? Oh, Jose Feliciano, let's listen to that. What's this? Johnny Cash, let's see what he's got. Just sitting here listening to all these old vinyls that my grandpa had. Some of it was real old, like you know, John, like Roger Miller, uh, Hank's No, Hank Thompson, and you know, like I said, Merle Travis. And then stuff from the '70s, Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, Merle yeah. Haggard, and that stuff really, really influenced me a lot. Now you said Feliciano, in with uh, a bunch of known country artists. Feliciano was more. Um, pop covers, I guess it would, with a Latin flair. Yeah. But he was, um, so your grandfather was interested in the music, not only just the country genre, in being a guitarist, it sounds like. My grandpa was kind of a pack rat. Uh-huh. So if somebody would give him something, or if he at a pawn shop and he saw something that looked cool, like a cheap vinyl that had a cool cover and it was not expensive, he'd take it home whether he's into that sort of thing or not. You yes. know, so like he had vinyls by... Like, I don't think Grandpa listened to Jose Feliciano, really, but he had some vinyls from him, and he probably just got them for a good deal. Yeah. He also had some, like, Black Sabbath records, and I know he didn't listen to no Black Sabbath. character, huh? Yeah. yeah. You know, so I think he just sometimes would just snag things because he's like, oh, that looks cool, or that, it was just such a good deal. Like, if it's 25 cents, he's getting it. Right. It doesn't matter if he likes that or not. What, do you know when was, when was he born? 1930. Okay. Yeah. All right, and so uh, how old are you when you first started to pick up the guitar around him? I was seven. Seven years old, he gave me my first guitar, and that's when I started picking. Okay, and that's, would you say, 93 to 5, 95? Yeah. You said you were born in 88. Mm -hmm. So, uh, okay, so 95, that's a, that's a huge generational gap. It's so interesting that you learned, that you took to him and his, his uh, hobby. Yeah, I was a big dork because of it, man. I'd go to school, like here I was, uh, by the time middle school came around, that's about the time I was becoming a decent guitar player. And, uh, you know, you had girls are like, oh, you play guitar? Play me a song. I'm like, yeah, let me sit right here, baby. Let me play you some Cannonball Rag, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm sitting here playing some like old Merle Travis tunes from the 40s and 50s because that's what my grandpa liked and it exposed me to. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. And uh, the girl's like, well, this is, what is that? You know, and they go down the hall and find the kid playing emo music, you sure. know, and they, they like what he's playing. Yeah. So I had to wise up in high school and be like, all right, if I want the girls to like what I'm playing, it, it ain't going to be no stuff from the 40s and 50s that my grandpa's exposed me to. That's when I started listening to, like, the country radio of the day and, like, trying to work out those tunes. Yeah. That's funny, though. Um, it, it's, it's too our detriment oftentimes I find that society is so pop-centric and youth-centric but I think in country uh, as well as in rock and, and southern rock too uh, you could trace its roots back to blues so I mean a lot of the um, the raw materials I guess you would say are gonna come from 
older music, a lot of that is timeless. A lot of chord progressions, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That stand the test of time. And sometimes they, they might be rearranged slightly, the tempo, the cadence, or things like that. But um, so it was irrelevant to those that were, I guess, less aware. But it didn't serve you at the time because you wanted the girls. <laughs> I did. Well, yeah. you know, I, it, at the time that I was real little, yeah. you, know, you know, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, even 14, like I wasn't, wasn't real interested in girls at those ages. You know, it wasn't until I was about, right about 14, 15 that I started That's kind of getting into girls, you know. So yeah. like as a kid, I got real into country music early, like seven years old. I remember being seven or eight and watching the Grand Ole Opry. Mm -hmm. And I saw, I, I, kept, I remember some of the people that was on it, that first Grand Ole Opry performance that I watched. Tracy Bird was on it, mm -hmm. and Reba McIntyre. Of course. And I just thought, man, these people are amazing. I want to do that when I grow up. I want to be a person that just plays guitar and sings for a living. That's, the, that's what I want to do when I grow up, you know. And yeah. uh, I got into country music, and I'd listen to country radio, of course. And I think I'm blessed to have grown up during an era of really good quality country music. There was a lot of great songwriting in the 90s. 90s country yes. had killer songwriting, killer musicianship. That was the era of the country guitar solo, you know? It was the golden era for so many different genres. I don't know, it's, it's some weird microcosm point in time, you know what I'm saying? But yes, I definitely feel that Absolutely. for a lot of genres. Yeah, but you know, it's like, I, you know, I'm my country music, the stuff I play is very guitar driven. I'm, I do a lot of the chicken picking and kind uh -huh. of stuff like that. And it's because I grew up listening to like Alan Jackson and well, Tracy Bird and Brent Mason played on all that stuff. He mm. played all them, that ripping guitar stuff you heard on Alan Jackson records, Tracy Bird records, Shania Twain records and everybody else's records. Uh, but like guitar solos and cool intros were common in the 90s country. Yeah. And now they've just about gutted that stuff out. If there's a guitar solo at all in today's country, mm -hmm. it's short, mm -hmm. real short, you know, uh, like a lick or two and, and then and you're out of it. So like. I, what would my life, what would my music today be like if I had grown up in, let's say, early 2000s, you know, and, and listened to that country music that was very poppy and hardly a guitar solo to be found? It's like, I, you know, I'm very much a product of my influences, my old, my grandpa's old country music, which, you know, I think had some stellar songwriting in it. Like Merle Haggard? Yeah. Dude, I mean, you know, I'm... That guy was, his, his heyday was way before I was born. But as a kid listening to him, it really gave me an appreciation for that old timey kind of songwriting. That, yeah, you know, not that. only that, if there, was ever, if there was ever an embodiment of country gangster, that dude looked, he looked like he could tear you apart or, or charm you at the same time on his album covers. Like he was, <laughs> he was so serious. Well, he went to prison. I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. you, you look in his eyes on the album covers and you could see it and you just don't mess with that dude. Um, I, I wanted to ask, um, or at least point out first that I, I really, I, I have a deep-seated respect for people that are custodians of history because I feel like they pay attention to sentiment. Mm -hmm. Sentimental value is of utmost value to people like that. I think that's important because moving forward, you see what happens to genres of music or, or society or things like that where it, it kind of gets diluted a little bit less of the soul is involved and a little, a little bit more haste, I yeah. guess. So I, I enjoy seeing people take elements of the past and kind of put their spin on it, but put it back out there out of respect and, and to add something new to things, you know? I think that's particularly important in a genre like country music because country is more than just, uh, you know, unlike pop or rock or something like that, country music is a tradition 
to a certain extent, just like bluegrass is. You know, bluegrass has rules. You know, there's certain kind of instruments you have to use, and there's certain things that make bluegrass bluegrass. And country music is kind of getting that is that way. And, and I think in recent years, the the lines of what makes a country song country have been blurred and obscured more. Yeah. Uh, and I think they've been blurred and obscured so much that people are kind of they're getting refreshed when they see somebody that's really doing something old school and unabashedly country again. You know, like this kid Zach Top that's all the rage right now. It's like people love how country he really is and how much he's really embraced the the, the tradition of it. Uh, the, really getting out there sounding traditional and looking traditional. So I think there's something to be said for tipping your hat and paying homage to to the tradition and the old the old greats while also, if you can, put your own little twist on it and be unique. Sure. You know, don't be a copycat and imitator, but don't go so far into crossover land that you're, there's nothing, there's nothing recognizably country about what you're doing, sure. you know, I, I think. I think uh, country is a, it, it's a, it's a genre that lends itself to tradition, not only for the music itself, but uh, I mean, it's rooted in family values, um, some of the old essential music, Acadian music, you know, um, they're centered around family gatherings and, and um, they come from some place, no matter what's in the lyrics, mm -hmm. they come from some place that had its, its own set of mores and values and um, those things go back w way beyond our ideals and limits, you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, yeah. it is rooted in in value, family value, and tradition, for that matter, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a you know a lot of old country music. I think country music in general. You you could say it was born out of American folk music, uh, bluegrass music, yeah. gospel music, oh, and yeah. blues music is where country came from, and then rock and roll too sprang out of the blues. Yeah. And then country also then borrowed things from this new rock movement that was happening. And, and I think rock at the same time borrowed from country music, you know, yeah. and that's kind of what Southern rock was. They're close cousins. I was going to say that back when you were um, when you were talking about your father's taste in music, because uh, they're, they're definitely akin to each other. Um, who did you name? It wasn't Charlie Daniels. It was someone else. Alabama. Alabama. And then one before that, um, that they they kind of blur the lines. Um, but it's tastefully done and I enjoy it. And it's gotten me into uh, so far as outlaw country. I don't particularly enjoy country too much. I've, I've found that, um, I found a lot of predictability in some of the chord changes and things. I know that, that sounds crazy, but um, I've enjoyed outlaw country because it's stripped down. Anything that's stripped down, I, I really, I like because you can absorb its essence. Um, it's pretty raw, you know? Very raw, you know? It, it well, predictability. So I think some of that predictability in chord progressions is like a vestige of blues too. You know, look at blues. It's, yeah. it's a revolving twelve right. bar thing. You yeah. know what I mean? They don't get no more predictable <clears throat> than blues. And uh, a lot of country is that way. I mean, look at songs like you know, "Just Stay Here and Drink" by Merle Haggard. That's a twelve bar blues progression. So is "Working Man Blues" and "Folsom Prison Blues." Just yeah. got a honky tonky feel to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and now you're seeing a lot of country music that's is rather than twelve bar type of thing. You got songs like Wagon Wheel that's just like a loop sort of progression. You uh -huh. know, a lot of country songs are that way, that are just four chords over and over, a minor six, a one, a five, and a four, and maybe not necessarily in that order, but just round and round and round and round it goes, yeah. you know? And you get countless songs using that same chord structure, you sure. know? And that does get very predictable. So if you're going to have songs with that kind of structure, 
the lyrics and melody had better be just awesome, you know. Sure. Uh, but then again, you got you got songs by like, you know, country songs by people like let's say Roger Miller, uh, and, and he had some chord progressions that were just incredible. Mm -hmm. You know, really, uh, really cool stuff that will change keys on you and then sneakily change back into the original key. Yeah. You know, really grown up chord progressions, mm -hmm. you know, from, from guys like him. Some Merle Haggard songs are like that. Some songs written by Dean Dillon are like that. Heck, uh, man, I don't know who wrote the song, but that Man, I Feel Like a Woman song by Shania Twain. Yeah. That was a big boy song. You try to sit down and, and play guitar with that, and, you know, the first, you can, that's not a song you could wing. You know, if okay. you if some if you're sitting sitting in with some band playing guitar, and that song is on the set list, you had better learn that song. Yeah. Because if you just try to jump up on stage and just oh, I'll just I'll just wing it, how you're gonna screw it up? There's some stops that come in unpredictable times. Yeah. The song changes keys, and back to the original key more than once. Mm -hmm. That is a grown-up chord progression. Yeah. Well thought out, interesting, uh, and you wouldn't think so. You know, you think, oh, that's just Shania Twain. That's just some old pop country. Yeah. Uh, you sit in, you sit in with a band, and you try to play that song. It, you know, it. You got to study that song. There's a lot of country songs like that, and I like it. I like that fact. And and I will say this too: that country guitar, next to jazz, it's the most challenging kind of lead guitar to learn. Technically, you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Jazz requires a, an immense vocabulary of music theory yeah. right to play and country music is really just twangy jazz okay especially if you're playing western swing like western swing is 100 percent twangy jazz yeah you know country music is like if you know playing rock and blues for example um if you play blues you can really get away with playing pentatonic scales over sure. the progression and at least playing licks that are based out of the pentatonic scale you can't do that with country music because country music is so melodic. Mm -hmm. The melody lines are so pronounced and the chord changes are so pronounced that you have to play over the changes. You have to play around that melody and counter melodies and you gotta play over those changes. You can't just run a pentatonic scale and have something sound country. It's impossible. Yeah. You can't just run a major diatonic scale and have it sound country. Like, and in a rock song, you can. You can play arpeggios. You can power chords, power chords <laughs> bluesy, pentatonic yeah. licks, diatonic type things, and 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 it'll be cool, you know. But country music, you'll that's gonna, it's not gonna sound country. It's not gonna is sound it, interesting. Is it the time signature? I mean, what, what's what's nailing it down as country in your mind? What is the essence? So you think about like I'm sorry, keep going. I'm trying to think of like a, a like a staple country guitar solo, you know. As opposed to like, all right, you look at like a, you know, a lot of your signature rock solos and it's a lot of riffing. It's a lot of riffing. Um, you know, it's like a Guns N' Roses song where Slash is playing guitar or, sure. or even a simpler thing, like something like Steve Ray Vaughan. Man, it's all pentatonics for days, that blues rock kind of thing, you know. Sure. But then you take and you look at something by like, like, like Married to a Waitress, but I don't even know her name, by Alan Jackson. That okay. rip-roaring guitar solo in that song, mm -hmm. that's some big boy stuff, man. And the, all the techniques involved, you got everything from string skipping to hybrid picking, you're using all your, you know, these fingers on this hand. Of course, Brent Mason's using a thumb pick, 
But I, when I do that kind of thing, I'm holding the pick and then using my fingers and you're using open string runs, you're using triple stops, triplets. So it's like the country style. You can't just do legato flat picked things and run through a scale. You've got to be doing little doubles, little triples, little ghost notes and little yeah. bends. You're emulating a pedal steel a lot of times. Instead of bending up into a note, a lot of times you start the note bent and bend down out of it. Okay. Which is something you never hear in a rock song or a blues song, really, hardly. Yeah. Uh, open string, like a, you, may, you might be a way up here on the 10th fret, 8th fret, and you're mixing open strings in with closed notes to get kind of a cascading effect. Yeah. So your fretboard knowledge really needs to be on point. Um, you know, you're, it's just different. You, you can't, you listen to any country guitar solo, anything that, you know, go listen to a Merle Haggard record where Roy Nichols played some of those solos. Listen to a Brad Paisley song. Uh, any Brad Paisley song, take take your pick, because they all got to just blow your mind guitar solo in them, pretty much. Yeah. And none of them are just scales. None of them. They are... Country music is a genre where you have to play over the changes. You have to. You've got to play over the changes and play around the melody. Yeah. You know, and that's what makes it so challenging. You know, yeah. you've really got to understand chord voicings. And uh, and how scales and chords interact, and how and how to work around melody and harmony. Yeah. And you got to kind of get creative. You break up the monotony of a solo by adding double stops, triple stops, like I said, open string kind of cascading runs, a little mixture of bluegrass flat picking and chicken picking and hybrid picking, and that little hodgepodge of pretty advanced techniques is 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 what makes country guitar country guitar. Yeah. And it is not easy. You know, it's one of the harder kind of guitar styles you can do. I would say jazz, country guitar, and flamenco guitar is the hardest type of okay. things to play. Yeah. When you were uh, watching all of this, seeing all this for the first time as a child, a, a lot of this obviously wasn't occurring to you. Um, you hadn't learned it yet. Um, and I, I guess as children, uh, we're not afraid to tackle anything as far as, you know, what we aspire to be. Um, partially out of ignorance, partially out of bravery, and you know, maybe a little bit of glee. But was your, how instrumental was your grandfather in sort of um, escorting you into the, the idea? And this may be way too complex of a question because you were so young, but I'll, I'll put it to you like this. A lot of kids out there will see uh, maybe a, a rock star on stage on TV or they'll hear him on the radio. They don't really make the association between that's just another person like you or I, and mm -hmm. you can become that. Do you know what I'm saying? So for a child to aspire to be that, it's just like aspiring to be an astronaut or president or anything else, because you know, they, they're not yet familiar with all the work that is involved. But had your grandfather not been there, do you feel like the, the path would have still been chosen and followed as it has? You know, maybe not. Well, I know it wouldn't have, because if my grandpa wasn't there, I don't think I would have ever had a guitar in the first place. Yeah. You know, he's the one that gave me my first guitar. He was the one that gave me my second guitar. And then, and they were both pieces of junk, by the way. My first, <laughs> my first couple of guitars were awful, uh, awful. Uh, just 
cheap, you know. It's a wonder I ever even learned how to play because that first guitar had strings about this high, like a dobro, you know. Yeah. And uh, man, your fingers would hurt, and you, you're pushing the strings down so far that even if you got the guitar in tune, by the time you push the strings the strings down, it's over. you're bending them sharp, you know. <laughs> yeah. So your guitar is never playing in tune, even if it is in tune, it's just awful. Yeah. Uh, but when I was like 14, my my grandpa and my dad pitched in together and bought me a, a nicer guitar, a, my first ever quality guitar, and I played that one for years gigged with it for years moved to nashville with it you know did all kind of stuff 14 how long had you been playing that so far seven years seven years and um i mean you had to advance in that time you showed promise for them to be able to pitch I in did. to, to I decide did. to pitch in and you know do y something. yeah and you know what it was is like you know i learned a bunch of things i learned how to pick a few things but what was like the the, the deciding factor I had learned how to play this little Chet Atkinsy kind of thing that had an alternating bass line that I did with my thumb uh -huh. while playing the melody simultaneously with my fingers. Nice. And it was just like a Jimmy Rogers yodel style kind of thing. And uh, that impressed my grandpa enough. We were like, we need, we need to get you a better guitar. Because you know, if you had a nice guitar, you'd probably enjoy it and play it even more, you know? Yeah. And uh, so we turned 14, I finally got a good one. And that really was like the moment, like, I learned a, a decent amount from 7 to 14, but not that much. You okay. know, like, I'd learn a little bit. I'd spend a little time with it. But the, getting that nice guitar really was a a, 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 a paradigm shift. You know what I mean? It, it took me into a whole new level of loving the instrument. It really did motivate me to play more. I really did spend an awful lot more time with it. So that was wise on my grandpa's part to, and my dad's part to invest in that for me. Um, so yeah, I definitely wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for the support I had from my grandpa, especially. Um, and he would—he was not a man of many words. He taught me what he could teach me. He wasn't a great guitar picker, mm -hmm. but he was pretty decent. He was a good rhythm player, pretty good finger picker. He couldn't burn it down and do some crazy chicken picking and whatnot like I wanted to learn. So I had to kind of teach myself a lot of that and seek other teachers. Um, yeah, I what, did want to ask, what else were you, were you doing? Did you have tab books? Did you have per, uh, private tutors or anything like that? You know, I never did the tab thing. I really? never did, never did. That was always, to me, a tedious way to learn. You got second string, string third fret, then fifth string, second fret. God, yeah, it'd take forever to piece yeah. a, a song together like that. You know, I, I'm always been, I've always been the kind of guy to just listen to a song, just listen to it and then find those sounds. Nice. You know what I mean? And just work it out. Yeah. And uh, again, stop and start as, over as many times as you had to, but figure it out and then, then you associate those sounds with where they are on the fingerboard and you learn them. And you learn patterns. I learned scale patterns, I learned chord shapes, I learned basic theory on uh, what a chord's made of. You know, like a, a, chord, a major chord is made of a one, a three, and a five. A minor chord's a one, a minor, three, and a five. And yeah. having that in here, then you know how to build chords kind of anywhere on the fretboard and move them around. And, you know, uh, when I kind of passed up what my grandpa knew, uh, which was right around the time I was 14, mm -hmm. he, uh, he took me, he found an, a teacher that was really good at like lead guitar stuff, found a guy who t gave lessons for pretty cheap and uh, took me there. And I took lessons for not a long time maybe six months or something. Okay. I uh, learned music theory from him, basic rudimentary music theory, and Gosh. learned uh, scales and modes and chord theory and things like that. And that helped me an awful lot. And then from there, I just I was really able to self-teach myself with a better effectiveness, with, you know, with, with more success. Because then I had the tools to teach myself. And, and I had a, a more well-trained ear, I would say. Because yeah. when the guitar player would do something, oh, he's doing a pentatonic thing. Oh, he's doing a little major scale thing. Oh, that was an arpeggio. 
right oh, you start seeing it through those lenses yeah and yeah. that helped an awful lot and then uh you know moved to nashville when i was 18 with nothing but two guitars and a duffel bag and I in moved. the pursuit of music mm-hmm yeah i moved there thinking i was a good guitar player we got there and figured out i was wrong <laughs> were you <laughs> writing uh your own music at that time oh i was i started writing songs in middle school when i was like 13 or so and uh I had not written a single good song until until I was probably 18 or 19, you know, until I moved to Nashville. I thought I had good songs, you know, thought I was a good picker, thought I had good songs. And I uh, go to Nashville and you realize, you, you know, you get into those little bars on Broadway and the very first bar you go into, that lead guitar player is better than you. And you're like, damn, you know, you go next door, the singer in that bar is better than you. Go to the next bar. The singer is the lead guitar player, and he's a better singer and guitar player than you. <laughs> right, you right. know what I mean? It's like, yeah. gosh, dang it, man! And then you go to uh, you go to a writer's round. You know, you go to the Bluebird Cafe, and you wait in a super long, quarter mile long line for the opportunity to get in that stage and sing your little songs that you wrote. And uh, heck, the first dozen songs you hear that night are better than anything you wrote. You know, so. Yeah. It was a real humbling experience moving there and seeing the just the amount of talent in that town. And mind you, the people playing down on Broadway that are better than you aren't even people that are really moving and shaking and making big waves in that town. Like they're not the best that town has, and well, they're I mean, better that than place you. Is you know? the epicenter, so I would imagine it's, it's got a saturation and there's a, there's a stiff competition and there, there's talent aplenty. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. It is the epicenter. It's the hub, you know, it's the it's the capital. It's the country music capital. Sure. So all the best country singers, country songwriters, country guitar players are there. Yeah. You know, and uh, even the, the most mediocre in town are better than the best in your hometown. Sure. You know, it's kind of like what you, you come quickly to find out. And, it, and that's why it's easy to move there with a big ego is because your family unwittingly builds that ego up in you they all you know you're from from where yeah i mean well, they, they need to they need to give you a, a backbone but they also need to kind of encourage you regardless yeah i, I would think you're you know? a big fish in a little bitty old pond somewhere and your, your your parents and your grandparents and your friends and your cousins are all man you're such a good singer you're such a good guitar player you're such a good songer you need to move to nashville and then you're like yeah maybe i am <laughs> aren't i i should and you get up there and you're like hell no i ain't yeah <laughs> you know? so then you're you're faced with the decision to well i either need to get good or i need to get the hell out of here and go back home you know so i stayed put for a long time and i i learned you know i, I, I found me some mentors made some friends with some really good songwriters and they were nice enough to take me under the wing and teach me some things and guitar players too I, man i used to hang out in those clubs and I'd find my favorite pickers, and I'd find out where they're playing and when, and I'd go and watch and stalk them like a crazy ex-girlfriend. That was well, school, huh? It was school. Yeah. How but, were you living out there? What were you doing to make ends meet and such? So when I first moved there, I had a crazy aunt who had a crazy friend and, you know, who was crazy enough to let this boy she had never met, who's just a friend of, friend of my aunt's, right? Like this this lady that my aunt knew from church i told my aunt julia i'm like i want to i want to move to nashville she's like well i got a friend that lives in nashville i could see if she'll let you rent a room with her i'm like do that and like i said i had never met her friend her name was vicky and uh she reached out made the connection said yeah my friend vicky says she's gonna let you come live with her and she'll let you live with her for like the first month rent free you know mm -hmm. while you get your feet under you and get you a job and then you got to start paying rent and i'm like cool I didn't even know what this lady looked like, much sure. less anything about her, uh, you know, and she ended up being really sweet. I do think she was half crazy for letting this boy she'd never met and didn't know nothing about move into her house, right. you know. Yeah. But uh, I moved in with her and, you know, uh, 
she let me live rent free and I had to quickly find a job. And uh, the first job I ever got in Nashville was teaching karate lessons, believe it or not. Out of left field. Where did that come from? Well, I took karate <laughs> lessons early on, like pretty much from the time I was like nine or ten years old all the way up until I was, you know, graduated from high school. Okay. And, uh, and I was pretty good at that and moved to Nashville. And I tried all kinds of things. I tried to find all sorts of jobs, and it was tough because I found out there's a whole buttload of people moving to Nashville with a guitar every day trying to find work. So Imagine that. <laughs> jobs are hard to come by. You had to take what you could get. And uh, I was at the mall in, uh, in Nashville. I don't remember which mall now, but uh, there was a little kiosk, like a little, you know, where there's this karate school being represented and instructors needed. And I walked up to them like, hey, you know, this is a Taekwondo school. I did Tong Soo Do. They're both Korean. There must be some similarities between these martial arts, like any way that you could maybe cross-train me over or something real quick and I'll teach for you. And they're like, hey, why don't you come by on Monday and, and talk to us? And they did. They, they basically cross-trained me over, taught me a few little things about Taekwondo and gave me a black belt and just, <laughs> you know, here nice. you go. You're officially in, a huh? black belt in yeah. you know, Taekwondo. We honor your Tong Sudo training and then they started paying me to teach and it was only $8 an hour. Eight dollars an hour. This was in this 06, is when? 2006. 2006. So that money went a lot further than it does now, <clears throat> especially when you consider that Vicky was only charging me like five hundred dollars a month for rent. Yeah. So it's not a lot of money, you know. I'm trying to remember what I was making in 2006. I believe I was working at a, a loading dock, a warehouse. I might have been making eight bucks, and we drove forklifts and all kind of other crap. So. Um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sure eight bucks. I don't know what the cost of living. How was the cost of living out there? It wasn't that bad at the time. Uh, so, like I said, I was making eight dollars an hour playing at the or teaching at the Young In Martial Arts Academy, the Taekwondo and Hapkido school, right? And yeah. wasn't making nothing, and was paying five hundred dollars a month to rent a room in an apartment, two bedroom apartment that this lady owned, and uh, I did that for some months until. Uh, a guy she knew from church who worked at Gibson Guitar Corporation lined me up with a job at Gibson, Ooh. making $12 an hour. That was a sizable pay increase. Yeah, and, and uh, I'm sure a, a welcomed change in occupation as well. Yes, it was. I got to hang around guitars and, you know, and be, build guitars, and that was fun. And I would say the people that worked there was my favorite thing about working there, the crew. Like, yeah. there were some really cool people working at Gibson. The owner of Gibson was a real piece of work at the time and the managers uh you know like his immediate you know plant man like just kind of like people that really treated you like you're disposable you know uh, but the team like the other workers man some really cool people that uh, I, and i loved that and we had really had a good time on the job they worked you to death mm -hmm. long hours sometimes 10 12 13 14 hours a day six wow. seven days a week sometimes yeah. if they if henry the owner had a quota of a bunch of limited runs he wanted out by x amount of time he didn't care about your life he wanted you working non-stop to get all them guitars done so you'd be mandatory overtime for the unforeseeable future that, that was the thing that sucked about it but i was making more money than i'd ever made in my whole life sure because 12 dollars an hour plus time and a half plus double time sometimes and uh, that was it was great, and my uh, and I after I had saved up enough money, uh, and I got tired of living with that lady Vicky. Nothing wrong with her; she was a sweetheart. But I was 18 years old, and I was kind of getting to the point where I'm like, you know, I'd like to be able to, you know, have a girl over sometimes or whatever. And she had like real strict rules: no girls over at my house, and no, no drinking, and 
no, you know, nothing. Yeah. So I'm like, I need to get my own place. <laughs> so I ended up finding me a two bedroom apartment in Donaldson and uh, the two bedroom, one and a half bath. And it was only 750 bucks a month. So nice. that gives you an idea what the cost of living was back then. You could get an apartment, a two bedroom apartment for anywhere between 750 to $1,250 a month, depending on how nice it was. Like a, a nice apartment in the nicer part of town, be yeah. somewhere more in the $1,200 ballpark, but you could get a pretty nice mid-level apartment for $1,000. How is Donaldson in proximity to the center of town or the city? Is it outside a city? Only limits? about 15 minutes from downtown. It's okay. a suburb. It's kind of like suburb. Okay. Donaldson is to, to downtown Nashville, kind of like Scotlandville is to downtown Baton Rouge. It's not far. You know okay. what I mean? It's really close, but it's a, yeah. it's a suburb. And Donaldsonville was not a nice suburb, you know, but it was cheap and it was what I could afford. But they had hookers in the apartment complex, and <laughs> Coke dealers and everything else. Brent was that great, right? <laughs> Let me tell you a funny story, man. There was a cocaine dealer that lived underneath me and uh, he, was, he was a drug dealer. He was from Puerto Rico and he was, a, he was a cool dude. He was really nice to me and he was married to a Mexican lady that didn't speak a lick of English. And she would always cook, and I could smell whenever they were cooking. Like the, the aroma would just waft up through the vents on the floor, and she'd make like the best tamales you ever had. And like sometimes she would bring me a plate of hot tamales just cause. Nice. So I loved him. And uh, you know he was the kind of dude that you know I remember one time I had car trouble. I'd you know I'd go down there and you know, knock on their door. Hey man, will you take me to the store so I can get some groceries, man? I don't have money for a taxi and my car broke down and you know don't have a car or whatever. He's like, oh yeah, man, let's go and give me a ride. Nicest drug dealer ever. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I didn't know he was a drug dealer for a while, like, but I suspected it because I'd be laying in bed and all of a sudden I'd hear like suspicious noises like caca. Like people would come at all hours of the night at like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., making like bird Verbally noises outside signaling. his window and shit to get him to come outside. And I'm like, what the hell? You know, like these yeah. people are trying to buy drugs from him. And like X amount of time goes by and me and him like forge a friendship. We even went like fishing together a few times, you know. And finally he comes knocking on my door. Hey, man, I, I want to I wanna tell you something. You know, like I really respect you. I like you. I, th I think, you know, I consider you a friend. And so I don't want to lie to you, you know, like. I sell drugs. I'm like, what kind of drugs? You know, he's like, you know, no, nothing serious, man. Mostly just a little coke, you know. And I'm like, that sounds serious, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I'm like, okay. I'm like, I ain't gonna tell anybody. He's like, I knew you wouldn't. I'm like, I, yeah. He's like, you want any? I'm like, no, I'm not into that, you know. Like, okay, all right, but yeah, but you're cool with it. I'm like, I'm cool with it. Whatever, dude. Nicest drug dealer ever. And to, to further elaborate on how nice he was, too nice. Because I feel like if you're gonna be in that profession, you can't be a pushover. You know what I mean? Like you got to be like a little bit of a leg breaker, I think, to really yeah. be like effective in the drug dealing industry. Well, one day I get a knock on my door and it's him, you know, open the door, it's him. And he's standing there with this hamster cage with a hamster in it. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, what's up, everybody? Normally in the middle of podcast, they give you a bunch of advertisements, but on the NewOrleansMusicians.com podcast, we like to shout out our local musicians. So if you're a solo artist or part of a band living in Louisiana and would like to get your shout out, this is your chance. Text 504-708-4923 or email us at neworleansmusicians at gmail.com. It's 100% free. It's easy to do. 
and it puts your talent in front of a large audience. So once again, that's 504-708-4923 or neworleansmusicians at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And now back to our show. And right out of his mouth, you want a hamster? I'm like, no, man. Why, why do you have it? Like, why do you have it and why are you trying to give it to me? And he's like, well, and he proceeds to tell me that he sold drugs to a fellow who didn't have the money to buy the drugs. So the guy gave him a hamster as collateral. Oh my God. And when he went back to collect on the money, the fellow still didn't have the drug money. So now he's just trying to get rid of this hamster that he's been keeping as collateral that he wanted to get rid of. <laughs> that doesn't sound too effective. I think I could part ways with a hamster over a, 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 a sizable debt. That's funny. I know. I'm like, dude, you were the worst drug dealer of all time. <laughs> Did you think these through? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you really need to get a new line of work, man. Like, this, you're not cut out for this sort of yeah. thing. Like, go watch The Sopranos or, like, literally any organized crime movie ever and get, get some inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, um, you're pathway through or while in Nashville um, I'm, I'm sure was uh, of immeasurable educational value oh, yeah. while you were there how Got long did you stay in Nashville well uh, overall about seven years mm-hmm. yeah uh, because I had left for, I was there for a while and got broke, run out of money, come home and saved up enough to go back and then went back up there and stayed for a number of years. So that happened a couple times. Uh, but overall, basically from 06 to 2014. Yeah. yeah. And when you returned back to Baton Rouge, um, what did you find yourself doing? Some of the same things you were doing before, same, same haunts or uh, well, was it different this time? I went through a bad divorce. The whole reason I left Nashville, I didn't want to leave Nashville because I, you know, I ended up marrying a girl up there. I married Merle Kilgore's granddaughter, great country singer, songwriter. He'd written, he co-wrote Ring of Fire for Johnny Cash and wrote, wow. um, he wrote more. You were and, married to the game literally, huh? I was. <laughs> This guy had written a bunch of hits. Wolverton Mountain, he was Hank Jr.'s manager for 22 years and, you know, president of the CMA organization and all that. So big mover and shaker, like country music business mogul, you know, and I was married to his granddaughter and uh, that was a uh, big mistake. But uh, anyway, I ended up having a couple kids with her and uh, we split up. She was too, uh, too generous with her affections and I didn't appreciate it. Uh, so we split and the, the, the divorce was very hard on me. It was very financially and emotionally and psychologically strenuous on me and I just felt like I needed to put a whole lot of miles between she and I and uh, move back home, move back where I had some friends and some people and where I could just kind of get my feet back under me, you know what I mean? So I came back down here and uh, I needed to kind of start over, you know, I had spent the majority of, you know, of course I was working for Gibson for a while and knew that, but I, I had ended up getting to the point where I was playing guitar and singing for a living up there. And I had a casino band, like party band okay. bar that I was playing in. We did everything from bars to casinos to private parties and all kinds of things. And that was a good gig. And um, which one of the bandmates ended up having a little relationship with her too. So that kind of... I lost her and the band all at once because I didn't want to be with either one of them after that. So I, I just I have to pause for a moment. I want to say that it was an incredibly dignified way to describe that she was too generous with her affections because <laughs> yeah. I've heard worse, yeah. much worse. That's yeah. wonderful. Before I forget, I wanted to ask you, are you up until this point, up until Nashville, are you strictly acoustic or had you had experience playing both? Did you have a preference? Oh, uh, both. You know, like when I first moved to Nashville, I had an acoustic guitar and a Telecaster. That, okay. That's what I rent. That's what I moved to town with, and um, 
mostly was doing acoustic guitar and learning to write songs better and was doing writer's rounds and stuff like that at first. And man, the first several months I was in town, I was so busy trying to make money to survive. I didn't really have that, that much time to, to perform. Okay. And I didn't have enough music of my own material to perform either, you know, that I was confident in. So I really was just trying to test out my songs on crowds at like open mic kind of writer's rounds for the first while. And then uh, there was a, a fella named Dustin Wilkes. I used to really like to watch his band on Broadway at Tootsie's Orchid Lounge. And he had a guitar player named Brad Wolf that I really liked. There was something cool about his persona and his playing style. and. Uh, I'd follow him around and I'd ask him enough questions like, what kind of pickups are you got in that telly? What kind of speaker you got in that amp? What kind of pedals you got over there? What are you, how'd you get that tone? How'd you do that one lick on that one song? And I probably drove the poor dude crazy. But, um, you know, given all that, after several nights of me doing this and harassing him in this way, uh, he had deduced that I was a guitar player, you know? So, okay. So he one time needed to take a cigarette break and he takes his guitar off his Pointing at, you know, pointing at me and pointing at the guitar. I'm like, me? So he handed me his telly and he went outside and smoked a cigarette and, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, so I'm up here playing with this band. And that was the first time I had ever played with a band ever. Oh, wow, okay. This is a Tootsie's Orchid Lounge in downtown Lower Broadway. This guy just gave me his Telecaster so he could have a smoke break. And here I am playing with Dustin Wilkes, who I think he was a great singer. And he was on The Voice, or not The Voice, uh, Nashville Star, that show. Okay. Yeah, I think it was the same season that Chris Young was on it. Uh, but here I am, you know, for the very first time playing electric guitar with a band in front of a crowd. And uh, what a moment, you know. Yeah. I was just like, it was very much a carpe diem, like seize the opportunity. You do were it. ready, though. You were ready. That's what counts. That's how you know. got there, man. I was as ready as I could be at that moment. You know, was you, right. You were prepared with the tools with which you had, I would say. And the the audience element wasn't new to you either because you had been performing in front of writers' rounds and things of that nature. So yeah. it, was the, it was the factor of the band that was um, different, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, which is not uh, intimidating in the least at the time, as compared to what's going on around you. I mean, I was intimidated. Stepping on stage with that band, you know. Did I, I you was, feel like the bar was high because of some of the, you were familiar with one of the guys, the singer? I, I, you know, I had chatted with the singer enough, and it was the guitar player that I chatted the most with. You know, and I was geeking out with him mostly about his gear and whatnot. So that's why he knew I was a guitar picker. And he's like, well, "Will you take this telly and play a few while I go smoke?" I'm like, "Okay." Yeah. You know, and I got. I remember one of the songs we did was "Right Where I Need to Be" by Gary Allen. I want to say we did Folsom Prison Blues, and I think maybe "Can't You See" or something like. We just did a few standards, you know, and uh, the crowd loved it, or at least they seemed to love it, and I had a ball, and the. I think he was the owner of the bar uh, at the time was there, and he came, and he, I actually sang one or two of the songs. Not only did I end up playing, but I sang too. Okay. The guy's like, "You sing?" I'm like, "He's like, sing one," you know, uh, because oh, because I was up there, you know. Here I'd take the guitar, and they're like, "What do you know? You know this song?" I'm like, "No, I don't know that song." Well, do you know this song? I'm like, "No, I don't know that song." It's, he's probably getting annoyed. He's like, "Well, shit, man, you're gonna be up here deliberating, trying to figure out a song we all know." I'm like, he's like, "You sing any? Yeah, what do you know how to sing?" I'm like. Uh, I could sing this. Yeah, we know that. Yeah, do it. Do it. The band. Yeah. That's what it was. So I ended up singing and playing, you know, but uh, the guy that owns the place saw me and he liked me. He said, hey, man, you got you got your own band? I'm like, no, I don't. He's like, you think you could put one together? I'm like, yeah, probably. 
I was like, would you like a gig here? I'm like, I'd love a gig here. <laughs> you know, that'd be cool. That's awesome. So I ended up getting a gig because of it. And, like, and that led to more gigs and other little things. And all because this one fella needed a smoke break. They, look, that, that's all it takes. I, I'm, I'm a, uh, a real believer in the idea that you just do everything you can today to be prepared for tomorrow. And that you were doing all of that already. Trying. And, and I wasn't that good. I was, you know, I was okay. Okay. You were honing your craft, and you were young too. But being 18. being uh, being well versed and prepared um, as you could be at that time, I think is is why you made it there too. Not just because he needed a cigarette. Do you know what I mean? So you had as much to do with it as he did. How about that? Well, I'd like 50, to believe 50. that. I'd like to believe that <laughs> he was he was a cool dude, man. And I ended up seeing him several times after that. And even years later, I ran into him. Like when you went back. Yeah, I like, you know, when I was maybe 25, 26 years old or something like that, I ran into him uh, actually across the street. Same street, different yeah. bar, across the street. He was still doing, still playing guitar and playing with somebody else. But uh, I said, man, you probably don't remember who I am, but, uh, you know, you really had an impact on me. Uh, You're playing and... And the fact that you let me sit in with you when you needed a smoke break, that led to me getting gigs, which led to me getting more gigs. And it, I think it had a lot to do with my confidence, too. You know what I mean? That was like an ice-breaking moment. You said something earlier that, um, I forget how you phrased it, but it was having to do with um, material that you had that you felt was good enough to perform, original material. Yeah. Because we were talking about being prepared, uh, again, earlier. And... Um, you felt like you weren't, to some degree, um, isomized because uh, I think it was because you were around so much talent. And like you said, there yeah. were a lot of people around you that were better than you felt. And so you possibly kind of shelved some of your own material. And oh, then felt, of it. oh, all of it. Right. That, that, I mean, it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot to deal with. Because um, you know what's funny? A lot of musicians, they start early off like you did. And um, by the time they're, you know, let's say 14 to 18 years old is when you're kind of finding your own self-identity. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. As a person, regardless of whether you're a musician or, or whatever you are. Um, and then when you pick up an instrument, it, it kind of it changes the landscape a bit because now you have two voids to fill or at least two sets of questions to ask yourself. Who are you musically? What is your musical identity? Yeah. You know, so feeling ill prepared for something like that, I think is only natural because you're confronted with a lot. Yeah. You know? I think my musical identity really took me a long time to figure out for a variety of reasons. For one, I have such a diverse, eclectic pool of musical backgrounds, mm -hmm. listening to everything from R&B country to old, like the old school country to Southern rock and blues. And while I was working at Gibson, I had this coworker who was a great guitar player, hell of a lot better guitar player than I was who, before he came to work for Gibson, was a guitar player in the, the Marine Corps rock band. Okay. And uh, he was really cool. His name was Brian James, and he looked cool. He was like 25 at the time, and I was 18, so I like really looked up, at, up to him. And he had a lot of experience. He, even after he got out of the Marines, he was with some kind of touring band. He had a cool gear. He was just a cool guy, you know, and I wanted to be like him. And uh, I'm like, how can I learn to play like you? And he's like, well, what do you listen to? And I would tell him the stuff. I'm like, well, I listen to Merle Haggard, and I listen to Chris Ledoux. And I was, he's like, no, man. He's like, you're never, no, dude. He's like, you're never going to become a great player listening to that stuff. Here's what you need to listen to. And he turns me on to, like, Joe Bonamassa and Kenny Wayne Shepard and Steve Ray Vaughan and, you know, uh, even, like, other things, like, you know, Albert King and, uh 
buddy guy, all the blues greats, you okay. know. He, he loaned me a few Crossroads DVDs for Eric Clapton's Crossroad concerts, and boy, that sent me down a rabbit hole, and I become enamored with all that, uh, that blues stuff. I ended up going out and taking my money and buying me a Strat, because I, I wanted a Strat. I wanted to be able to do that Steve Ray Vaughan sound. You really? Know? Oh yeah, because I was so obsessed with that stuff he turned me on to. And uh, so, you know, then, all, then comes out of nowhere this blues influence. And I had never listened to blues really before then, before mm -hmm. meeting that coworker at Gibson and him, him turning me on to all that, you know. Did you find the blues more attainable? Because earlier when we were talking about technicality of guitar and things of that nature, you were kind of citing blues as uh, also predictable. Absolutely. And, and inherently maybe a little more simple than some of the other technical aspects of say jazz. Yeah. Did I you would find say it so. easier to to um, to learn, to attain at yeah, that time? I would say the licks, you know, learning blues licks is a hell of a lot easier than learning country licks. It is more attainable. It's an easier attainable stepping stone, you know, and then and uh, if there's anything challenging about blues, it's not learning the licks. Learning the li blues licks is not hard. It's playing blues licks with feeling and soul. Absolutely. Is what's hard. Absolutely. Like really pouring yourself into it and playing them with soul and, and feeling and emphasis and with passion is hard. Yeah. But just playing the licks is not hard, right? Just playing country licks is hard, much less playing them with soul and emphasis. When you're going to play country with personality, that's yeah. up here, skill, yeah. you know what I mean? But blues, is like, it's easier. It is easier. Groove music is like that, though, I find, because it... it there's a there is a timing and a cadence and groove music and an expression it could be they could be playing one note man and you can't do it like they do it and yeah. it's for 15 reasons that you'd have to sit and it's it's almost like timing and dynamic is everything it's almost like meditating it, you get into the groove and you feel it and and you have to sit back and think about what just happened like how did they convey that yeah. One note. How did they convey that? It's a challenge, man. And you know, to play a play a solo using very few few notes and make people feel something. You know, you've got to be really creative with how you arrange those few notes and how you space them out. Yeah. And how many counts goes between notes and the volume level and attack that you hit them with and yeah. the vibrato that you choose. Maybe you bend into one, bend out of one, slide into one. You know, slide out of one. Yeah. Yeah. There's little options you got, uh, but to play it with with soul and to and and finesse and you know, to pour emotion into it, you've really got to have control and command over it. And that's. You sound like, um, at least up until now, maybe now you look at it like, so I don't know what you sounded like uh, when you were 18 to 25, but were you as big on the technical aspects and techniques of playing guitar back then? Well, it was more of a finger picker. You know, more finger-style guitar, because, uh -huh. you know, grew up listening to that Merle Travis kind of thing and Chet Atkins and, you know, stuff like that. And it was mostly just finger-picking and accompanying myself singing and songwriting. And I'd learned some little solos, yeah. pretty simple solos from okay. Chris Ledoux tunes and some Merle Haggard tunes and some Johnny Cash tunes. But, like, you listen to the solo on Folsom Prison Blues by Johnny Cash. That's not a hard solo, you right, know? Right. But that was the kind of stuff I'd, you know... Would would have done you know prior to going to Nashville. But then you go to Nashville and you watch some cat doing all this barn burning Brent Mason style, melt your face off country chicken picking solo, and I'm like, oh, I want to know how to do that. You yeah. know. The reason I ask is because I, I'm wondering how much of the, the the groove and the timing and the feeling and the soul that we're talking about now, how much of that did you have, um, in your pocket? 
when you went to Nashville? Because, I mean, you had more, you see what I'm saying? It, yeah. it seemed like you were more technically savvy, perhaps, maybe, than you were uh, with some of the other things that we were talking about. Maybe yeah. a, a more one-sided at, at that time, being a, a budding musician, I guess. I think my timing was pretty good from the start. When I got there, it was a decent timing um, because... I think when I was about 16 or 17, I got introduced to a, a songwriter that was published. He wrote a lot of songs for Disney, and he had produced some different things. And uh, his name was James Marsden, and uh, he had his own recording studio, and he invited me over when I was a teenager. And he's like, hey, cool. let me hear some of your songs. Play me some of your songs. And uh, he's kind of like, I could tell he didn't like them. You know what I mean? But he was he was nice enough. He was a gentleman. He's like, eh, you know, you've got a lot of room for improvement. And, uh, you know, I think you need to keep writing. And uh, really spend some time like listening to a bunch of hit songs and like it'd really do you some favors to try to emulate those hits. Like try to figure out what, like listening to Rascal Flatts and think like what makes Rascal Flatts song a Rascal Flatts song. Like try to sit down and write a Rascal Flatts song. And then sit around and, and try to write a, a Clint Black song. Like try to write in those styles and you'll learn a lot trying to do that. And he's like, and another thing is like you really should get a metronome or a drum machine and work on your timing because I've noticed that you're playing guitar along with your voice when you really ought to be, you know, instead of... Interesting. He's like, yeah. you need to just lock into a rhythm and then sing in and out of that rhythm. Let that rhythm be a rock-solid bed to sing on top of instead of trying to match your guitar to your voice. He's like, that's a, it's a mess. You're, you know, rhythm, and I'm like, oh, okay. And I went out and got me a, a Digitech like effects pedal that had a drum machine built into it. And for a long time after that, I would practice with, with little drum loops. Sure. And that really tidied up my right hand a lot, my That's, timing. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and it was funny, my first songwriting mentor in Nashville, um, when I got there, when I was still living with Vicky, Miss Vicky, mm -hmm. uh, she had this clubhouse in her apartment complex in Franklin, which is a suburb south of Nashville. And um, I would go into that clubhouse to play guitar I could go up above the gym, you know, where people would work out. They had a clubhouse above that, like a loft, and I could go up there and play guitar, pick on my Telecaster with my little amp I had. And uh, one day this, this fella, middle-aged guy, pokes his head up over the railing. He says, hey, you sound pretty good. Uh, pretty good picking. He says, uh, you write songs? I'm like, yeah, I write some songs. He says, I'd like to hear your songs. He says, uh, here's my card. Why don't you come to my house and... And uh, I'd like to hear you play. And I was like, where do you live? And he's like, I live in this apartment complex, dummy. I'm like, why do you think I'm in here lifting weights? <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah, good, good point. You know? Yeah, you were excited. Though, I was, yeah, man. Yeah. Well, and I didn't know who he was. I should have known who he was. I was an idiot, and I hadn't done any homework, and I didn't know nothing about nothing. I didn't know anything about the politics of Nashville or who wrote what or who, you know, nothing about that stuff. Yeah. And I don't even think it had really dawned on me that, that the, at that point in my career that the country artist singing a song hadn't written the hits. Really? You know, I don't think it had really dawned on me that when you listen to a, a Tracy Bird song, that Tracy Bird might not have wrote that song, you know, or a George Strait song, That's that somebody else might have wrote that song, you yeah. know, like... What about all these albums that you were looking at that your grandfather owned? I mean, did you not, did you see production credits? Did you... Man, I looked at some of them, you know, and I paid a lot more attention to, like, who played guitar on stuff, you know? It's like, I don't know how I, how I missed that, but it's like, you had people that were very up on, oh, hey, you ever heard of so-and-so? Yeah, he wrote this for this guy and wrote this for this guy. And I did not know none of that, you yeah. know? And if I had, I would have known that this fellow who just gave me his card had written 14 number one hits. Wow. You know, his name was Walt Aldridge, and he had written all kind of great songs. He wrote, There Ain't No Getting Over Me by Ronnie Millsap. 
uh, Holding Her and Loving You by Earl Thomas Conley, all these great songs. Now, how, back up for a second, how, how was it that he could overhear you? It was just an open loft, you know, it was a clubhouse that had like a little weightlifting area down there, and then above it there was this loft. Okay, so it was community space. Community space. Within for the apartment, apartment complex. complex. That's right. Okay. They even had a recording studio in that in that clubhouse that, that people could rent and use, random. you know. Yeah. Uh, I didn't use it because I didn't know how, you know, but... Uh, You're okay, it's 720. Yeah, we'll probably have to wrap this up here in a minute. Um, okay. But I'll finish this story. Sure. So he, he invited me you know, to his place. And he's like, why don't you come over to my house, sing me some songs. And, you know, he really kind of told me the same thing that, that, that James Marsden had told me. Uh, not about my timing. He didn't have any complaints about my timing because by this time my timing and picking was a lot better. But yeah. lyrically, he says, you know, he says, some of you, he's like, your songwriting, it's not bad, but I haven't heard a hit. And I haven't even heard anything that, that, that could be a hit, you know, or that I would even pitch to anybody. He says, no offense, he's like, you know, but he says, you really need to, I want to give you a homework assignment. I'm like, okay, he's like, I want you to listen to this artist, this artist, this artist, and this artist, and I want you to go home and I want you to write a song for each one of them. Like, really listen to what makes those artists them, the, the essence of them and the kind of songs they cut. Mm -hmm. And I want you to write me a song for each one of them. You know, like write something that, Sounds like as it belongs. If it was for the pitch, you would pitch it to them and they would like it and they'd cut it. Yeah, yeah sounds like it belongs with them. I'm like, okay. And uh, I'd go and play it for him and he says, eh, it's pretty, you know, he'd critique him and tell me what's wrong with him. No, they wouldn't do that and here's why, you know. Try again. Wow, man, that's know? incredibly in insightful for you, I would think. It was, and I needed that. I needed that guidance, it's you know, and it didn't hurt my feelings. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, and I. I went home and I'd go back after it some more. And then one day he, sent, he invites me to his studio. You know, he had a recording studio and uh, he, you know, listens to more of my songs. And he gave me a CD. He said, here's a recent batch of songs I wrote, you know, that I'm just recently recorded. He said, well, go home and listen to these and you come back and you let me know which ones you like. And uh, I'm like, okay, I'll go listen to them. Next time I come back and hang out with him, I'm like, man, I really like this song and this song. He says, good. I'm glad you said that because those are the two strongest songs on that CD. The rest of them really aren't all that good. And I'm like, oh, it's kind of gauging, gauging he, your uh, ability to, to spot the. He kind of was, you know, and he was humble <clears throat> enough to know even about his own material that not all of his songs are hits. You know yeah. what I mean? He knew that you even knew that himself that sometimes he would just write a song to express himself. Sometimes it's just to get a feeling or a thought out there. And I mean, none of his songs sucked, but not all of them were going to be hits. You know, but he had a couple songs that were really hit-worthy on that thing, and he was testing me. Yeah. And I remember the first time I ever played him a song that he finally said, you know, it was like, I don't know, it might have been the third time that I played for him. He says, that's a pretty good one. I'm like, that, that's huge, really? right? Yeah. yeah. Monumental achievement, you know, and uh, that made a huge difference, man. He was one of my first, the, one of the first people ever nice enough to take me and give me some songwriting guidance like that. I wanted, that's what I was about to ask, um, because up until now, your guidance was written material that you were hearing already. Um, I mean, it's one thing to be able to play. It's another thing to be able to write music, I, I guess, in so much as parts of songs. But to be able to wrap your head around the concept of an arrangement of the structure of a song yeah. is those are three totally different areas three different hats that you got to wear, you know. You do, and I think I've gotten pretty good at that over the years, and it's because, you know, I never stopped trying to do that assignment. Like, you know, for years and years and years after that, I spent an awful lot of time doing that and thinking along those lines, you know, and, and uh, I still do it. 
and I'll, I'll, I'll go down a rabbit hole and listen to somebody like Roger Miller mm -hmm. for a while. Spend a day listening to his songs, and then I'll sit down and write me a Roger Miller song. You know what That's I mean? That's cool, man. Just you know? just to kind of keep your chops up and, and do what he was showing you. Yeah. And the I'll, first yeah. guy, I forgot his name, I'm sorry right now, but uh, the, the, the first guy that was you were seeking guidance from was kind of vague, and it seemed like it was not as impactful of an encounter, never mind his credentials. The second guy kind of took the time to get more specific, and it really resonated with you because I think you kind of needed somebody to literally spell it out at that moment oh i didn't need it i needed it bad because you know the other guy was in my hometown and this guy was here in nashville you know what i mean and yeah. like, he was really like here i am struggling just trying to tread water in this town and find a bearing and try to figure out how to be a better country singer better songwriter better guitar player and just give me give somebody throw me a bone here and help me improve and here the bone comes <laughs> you know how long did it take you to figure out who he really was well i went home like went back to my apartment you know which is only a two-minute walk from the clubhouse, you know, go back and I get on the fire up the old computer and, and look him up, and then I was gobsmacked. I'm like, oh, I was just talking to, <laughs> a, to a fellow that had written all these hits, and then I was in, in, kind of intimidated going to, to sit with him. And that very first encounter, that very first day that I sat with him and met with him, he puts this guitar in my hands. He's like, I want to show you something. He goes in the back room, and he pulls out this guitar in kind of a shabby case, and it was an old guitar, old Gibson. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, uh, He's like, you know, what do you think of this thing? I'm picking on it. I'm like, yeah, it's cool. It's kind of old and ragged. It doesn't sound very good. It's got kind of like a dull, thumpy sound. I think I like my talking mini better. You know, I had a talking mini. And uh, he's like, I think he was really expecting me to geek out over it. And I was not into vintage gear. I didn't understand that vintage gear was like a thing to covet anyway at the time. Just he, might have ex he might have mistaken your novice as a, a musician and, and placed that in the field of, of guitars, not knowing your background, uh, working for um, assembling guitars, which you were doing, right? You were assembling them, you were... You were yeah, I was working for Gibson at the time, but like, you know, he hands me this guitar, and he's he acted surprised that I wasn't, like, geeking out over it more. I'm just That's picking funny. it up. Oh, it looks old, you know? Oh, yeah. He's like, it is old. And he's like, it's a 1950-whatever, and I'm thinking, oh, it doesn't really sound all that good. Like, maybe it needs new strings, I don't know. And he says, well, that guitar used to belong to Johnny Cash. And I'm so <laughs> you know, then I'm like, oh man, God, I don't want to drop. Yeah. I don't want to drop this thing or dent this thing or like make sure my buttons don't touch it. You know, all of a sudden, I was already nervous about being there in the yeah. midst of this hit writer, and now he hands me this guitar that used to belong to Johnny Cash, and I think he told me that it was given to him by Marty Stewart. Mm -hmm. So I like, oh man, you know what I mean? Made it all the worse. And then he's like, well, why don't you play me a song you wrote? And I'm like, well, I just, do I play it on this song? Do I gently put it down and grab my guy? I don't know what to do here. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah playing one of my songs and you know that was the first time I'd ever sat with him and played him anything and it was a nerve-wracking experience but it was a good experience and he was pretty brutal too man like he would cut me off he would tell me what was wrong with my songs you yeah. know he'd be like son he's like you need to you need to trim the fat he's those like, moments are invaluable though. yeah they are he's you know you're using too many words too many things like that and you know words that don't need to be in there sound to get advice your, yeah. get your point across you know he's like any old fool can make a big statement with a hundred words. It's just, you know, real genius is when you can, you know, distill a really big statement with big implications down into very few Absolutely. simple words, yep. you know, and uh, when you have a good coherent rhyme scheme and when you have, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He says, try to say more with less. And, 
you know, stuff like that. Uh, you know, that, that melody's cool, but I think it's a little dated. You know, you need to maybe work on, yeah. maybe go back and revisit that song, spend some more time with it, find a new melody for it. You know, like he would, he'd just make no bones about it, tell me what I needed yeah. to hear. And uh, I really value it. I still appreciate it to this very day. Sometimes I wonder if he even remembers me or if I ran into him, if he'd remember who I was, because he only hung out with me a few times, but those few encounters were just indispensable. And then there were some other songwriters that were kind in the same way that he was over the years that I had the opportunity to learn a lot from, but he was the first one. Yeah, I'm sure it was real refreshing because earlier you had mentioned how it was coming from your family where everybody tells you you're great and you're a big fish and then you go out to Nashville and you get your ego knocked, you know, knocked down a few notches and then you have somebody there to actually break it down for you and, and kind of critique you, but subjectively not so much to oh, yeah. say that, you know, you're, you don't belong here. It's, you know, this is what you need to do to get where you're going because they know you're trying. And you must have showed some sort of promise and things that they, 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 they were able to spot. Do you I know would like saying? to believe that. I'd yeah. like to assume that he wouldn't have just invited any old punk kid with sure. a guitar in yeah, his place. No. See, he must yeah. have seen something in me that he liked, you know. And, uh, boy, I was green as all get out and ignorant as hell, but he, he saw something, you yeah. know. And I'm grateful that he did because had he not taught me those few things, I don't think I would be where I am today because the, the advice he gave me w was a great step in the right direction that led to a lot of woodshed and a lot of working. Sure. And, uh, you know, uh, it had a huge impact. It affected the whole trajectory of my songwriting. And, yeah. and I still use a lot of what he taught me. Um, I still use a lot of what Boomer Castleman taught me and, you know, different people like that. I, you know, Little things. Whenever you get opportunity to write with a great uh, with a great writer, um, you glean little things from. Them. You nice. figure out what it is that makes them so great, and you try to borrow that thing if you can. Yeah, you know, and, and incorporate it into your own little set of tools if sure. possible. Sure, sure. That's what I've tried to do. Um, with the interest of time, uh, yeah. your benefit. Uh, I probably need a roll. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's usher ourselves into present day. Speaking of where sure. these things have brought you, and. Um, sort of where you're at now, uh, albums, performances, things of that nature, what mm -hmm. you find yourself doing? Well, so uh, still do the occasional acoustic show, uh, not as many. Now I got a full band, of course, and we play all over the place in uh, clubs and bars and private parties and corporate events and weddings and whatever. If it pays, we plays kind sure. of thing, you know. But um, I got an album out, came out in February last year, the Walk of Shame Hall of Fame album, and uh, on December 8th of this year, I got a whole nother album coming out. Congratulations. That's right, and we're already in the process of working for, uh, on another one. We're in, already kind of recorded a few tracks on the, on the next record, so we're, we're not slowing down, not slowing down the momentum, so the, I appreciate you. The first <laughs> one, um, it was a year span between the two? Is that about? About a year, yeah. We we didn't spend a whole year before we recorded one of the tracks, so we put out Walk of Shame Hall of Fame album, and then wasn't but a few months after that we got back in the studio and cut the next the first track off of this one that's about to come out called Shrimp Boots, mm -hmm. and we put that song out there just to just to keep some content coming and keep people engaged, and that's like a little taste of what's to come. Sure. And uh, this new record is going to be awesome. Uh, I think it's. I kind of listened, to, you know, to what my fans wanted. The the. Um, my first record came out, and the biggest, and people, people liked it. There's a few songs on there that did pretty good around here, but um, there's one complaint that I heard a lot from people, and that's that the album didn't reflect how I sounded live. 
they're like, man, it's a cool record and all, but it's, you know, it's a big production, like horns and all yeah, these yeah. things that aren't really in your band. It's like, yeah. and you only played like three guitar solos on the whole record. I'm like, well, I was kind of trying to let the songs speak for themselves. You know what I mean? They're like, ah, we want to hear more guitar solos. I'm like, okay, well, so this new record that I'm putting out, it is very <clears throat> guitar driven. It is very raw, like four piece jam band, just me, a, a bass player, a drummer and a keyboard player and just rocking out like you hear on my live show. So this, I'm giving the people what they say they want. Yeah, we'll see what they, we'll I'm see what laughing on the inside while you were saying that because way back in the beginning of this, you cited the difference between present day country and uh, the, the roots country of old as uh, having lost a lot of the guitar solos. Mm -hmm. So it's funny that you were reminded and you're putting it back in now. That's, oh, yeah. that's really cool though. Yeah, um, this album here is getting back in touch with the roots for sure. You know, very guitar driven, musicianship driven kind of record. That's yeah. awesome. Raw and rootsy and not very produced and not like spit shined, you know what I mean? It's just like you're listening to a live track band because you are. Yeah. We tracked all the stuff live. like. We're in the room looking at each other. I'm playing guitar while the drummer and bass player and keyboard player are doing their thing. We're all looking at each other and giving us cues, and that's how we did it. Yeah. We didn't just stack this stuff together. And that's great at its yeah. essence. That's really cool. Yeah. That's how a lot of things were done back in the day too. And I, you know, I have such reverence for that. Um, if they want show schedules, things of that nature, where are they going to find? So uh, mm -hmm. go to my website. <laughs> www.taylornottamusic.com. Uh, I have a show schedule up there that you can always go look at. Now, right down, right now, I think it needs to be updated, uh, but I'll do that tomorrow. So to make, to it, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> and then uh, also Facebook. You follow me on social media. I always periodically post what's coming, like the, the you know a week at a time, sometimes even a whole month at a time. Hey, here's this week's shows. Here's this month's shows, and uh, you know, like I say, I try to post my whole calendar of dates coming up on the on the website. Yeah, you're busy, huh? I have been really busy. It's starting to slow down. The winter time, dead of winter is slower, you uh -huh. know, but the summer, spring and summer were really, really busy, and I did a lot of traveling. I spent a lot of time in the Pacific Northwest this I was going to ask the summer. span because you didn't really uh, specify, uh, the, not the span, but the geographic span, yeah, where everywhere. you're performing. Yeah, everywhere. Um, I do a lot of shows in Louisiana, of course, you know, um, but, man, I mean, we play in Mississippi, and we'll play... Florida and Alabama and Tennessee and Kentucky and Utah and uh, Oregon, Washington, California, Nevada. This this past year, I played all those places That's that great. I just named. You know, so I mean, just like I said, I've even played in Canada a couple of times. That's you know? cool. So it's like if it pays, uh, you know, if it if it makes sense, I'll show up. You sure. Know, if it will, we'll make it happen. And uh, I'm definitely not just a local guy. Well, play anywhere anywhere that it makes sense to go gotcha well i thank you for your time man this has been great well, thank you man all right appreciate you check it out we all pretty much start off like jam bands we get together we push our souls out through the speakers we look around the stage and read off of one another and you know after so much time we know where the next person is going aside from those connections we build connections with the fans and that means the world to us that's why listeners like yourself are so important to us. We'd love to have you back, so hit the button and follow the show. You can also support this show by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash New Orleans Music. That's buymeacoffee.com slash New Orleans Music. And remember, you can find music videos, albums, articles, and interviews with bands like my own, Pocket Chocolate, on neworleansmusicians.com. Thanks for listening. 